You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 105. Last week, we discussed three random topics, and this week will be somewhat similar with a few less topics. This time, they're all going to have a theme, though, and that's the changes in command of the French and German armies, and then the relationship between that new German command and Austria-Hungary. In 1916, the man that had led France since the beginning of the war, Joseph Joffre, would lose his position as head of the French military and his replacement would be General Robert Neville. On the other side of the front, Falkenhayn, who would also be replaced by the dynamic duo of Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Both of these changes in command would have massive implications on what would take place in 1917, with both having a different outlook than the leader that they were replacing. For the French, it would mean the launching of what would come to be called the Nivelle Offensive, which would almost break the French army. For the Germans, it would mean a new focus and a new set of goals, along with changes to how the German and Austrian armies were handled together. We will mostly discuss the military implications of the German chains. However, there is also a wide-ranging economic and societal uh, set of changes that would also come as a direct result of the change in command. I am, however, holding those until next week when we start a month-long deep dive into the home fronts around Europe, which were really starting to feel the strains of the war. On the French side, there had been growing concerns among the French politicians about Joffre's conduct of the war since 1915, but it had really begun to solidify itself during 1916. The seeming complete failures of all the French efforts during 1915 were coupled with the scandal of how unprepared Verdun was for the German attack and this finally put too much pressure on Joffre. It was really only his status as the hero of the Marne that kept him in his position as long as he was. However, it all had to come to an end. And even when the French politicians wanted to get rid of him, they could not just sack him entirely. Instead, he was given a position as an advisor to the war cabinet, which ended up being mostly an empty title. He would spend a stint as the French representative to the Supreme War Council in 1918, However, by that point, it was mostly just ceremonial, and he would be joined by another supreme commander who would also lose his position in his own country in the form of Luigi Cadorna from Italy. Mostly, Joffre just spent the next 12 years in the office provided for him and with the small staff he was allowed, working on his memoirs. He would die in 1931, outliving many other French World War I commanders, although by that point he was living a life in relative obscurity. His replacement would be General Robert Neville, who, would, who had made his triumphant entry into our story back in Verdun uh, when he took command over the defenses from Patan. 
The choice of Neville was somewhat interesting because if you wanted to rank the French generals in terms of experience or likelihood of succeeding Joffre, he would have been at least fourth, at least by my estimations. There was Joffre's deputy de Castelnau, who had been serving at a high level of command since the start of the war, but he was too aristocratic and Catholic for some members of the government. There was also some concern about him continuing Joffre's mistakes. There was also Foch, who was also Catholic, and then of course Patan, who had done nothing but show himself to be extremely competent during the entire war, and was something of a rising star, but again, Catholic. Catholic was a, a big problem uh, for the French government. Instead, the French government went with Nivelle, who had been credited with the turnaround of the French efforts that were done, from ones of defeat and defense to offense and victory. If you remember, it was Nivelle who was put in charge of the French attacks at Verdun during the summer, just when the Germans were reducing their commitment to the attacks. And because of this, he was the commander of the French troops that recaptured Fort Douaumont and pushed the Germans almost back to their February start lines. This action alone made him a bona fide hero. It was this and his political connections back in Paris that put him as a leader of the French war efforts, even though he started the war as a colonel, and had very little experience commanding large groups of soldiers. The one thing that he was not lacking in was confidence in his own abilities. He completely believed that at Verdun, he had determined the formula that would win the war. All he had to do was massively scale it up, find where to launch the attack, and then let it fly. This belief would come to a head later in 1917, when the French would go forward on the Chemin de Dame, where they would have their date with destiny and mutiny. In my typical fashion, I would like to point out that if the Chemin de Dame would have worked, or maybe if it just would have went better, Nivelle would have been in command until the end of the war. I would probably be talking about how choosing him over the other more senior generals was a truly inspired pick a man who had seen nothing but success so far in the war, who had quickly risen through the ranks for his actions. The French government really would have known what it was doing. But of course, that did not happen. And now pretty much everybody considers the choice of Nivelle to be a very bad move. Now we will switch gears to talk about the Germans. Falkenhayn had taken over from Moltke way back in 1914, after Moltke had what appeared to be a nervous breakdown. 1915 had been a good year for him, as in the west the German army had repelled all of the Entente offensives, while in the east the Russians had a serious setback at Gorlitsch-Tanov. However, 1916 was a very different story. Essentially, 1916 was Falkenhayn's no-good-very-bad year. It started with Verdun, where the German attacks had quickly bogged down, had quickly started to suck in the resources that could have been used elsewhere, and then it produced no results. With the French retaking most of the ground by the autumn, it certainly didn't look good. This put Falkenhayn in a tentative position, especially with the rising stars in the east using all of their political muscle to discredit him. In the end, the final straw would be from an unexpected direction, Romania. Just before Romania had entered the war against Germany, Falkenhayn had boldly stated that there was absolutely no way that it would do so. This gave Hindenburg, Ludendorff, and Bethmann Holweg all the ammunition they needed to marshal all of their political strength to get him removed. Bethmann Holweg had wanted Falkenhayn gone since they had disagreed so strongly over the 1915 unrestricted submarine campaign, 
and the reasons that the dynamic duo would want him gone are obvious. There was only one very important person who had to be convinced, and that was the Kaiser. It was his sole responsibility to name a replacement for the chief of the general staff, or any of the appointed political offices, and because of this, Falkenhayn could have maintained his command if he had the confidence of the Kaiser, even if everybody else wanted him gone. The Kaiser had been a supporter of Falkenhayn for quite some time, but even he could sense a sea change. And on August 29th, he sent a message to Falkenhayn that he should come to Potsdam to meet with him and Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Falkenhayn, knowing what was happening, offered his resignation, which was accepted without comment by the Kaiser. Falkenhayn was initially offered a position as ambassador to Constantinople, but he refused this posting and instead requested a military position instead. The new chief of the general staff, Hindenburg, accepted this request and made him the commander of the Romanian campaign, something he probably saw the irony in. It is because of this posting that we have not seen the last of Falkenhayn, because here in a few months, he will ta- we will talk quite a bit about the Romanian campaign, where Falkenhayn will actually do quite well. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Field Marshal Hindenburg would become the chief of the general staff on August 29th, and he would be joined, of course, by Ludendorff, who would have the position of first quartermaster general. They brought a new vitality to the German command, and the first thing that they did was to try and get a handle on what was happening on the Western Front. It is important to realize that they had spent their entire war in the East, where they had found success, and I'm sure that some reports of the fighting in the West were provided to them as a way of just general information sharing among among German commands. However, they did not have any first-hand experience with the fighting there, since the opening moves in 1914, and the actions in the West were quite different than what they had dealt with in the East. Ludendorff would later write in his typical pessimistic tone that, quote, our position was extremely difficult and it seemed impossible to find a way out. We ourselves are not in a position to attack and we dare not hope that any of our enemies would collapse. If the war continued for any length of time, defeat seemed inevitable, end quote. Seeing this situation for themselves put the problems in front of them into new context. The challenge as they saw it was that since they did not have the ability to take the offensive in the, in, on the Western Front, they had to find some way of seizing the initiative. They had to find a way to put their fingers on the scales somehow, because just sitting at the front and enduring siege after siege from the Entente, who were getting better at execution every time, was just a recipe for defeat. They also knew that they would need to find a way to drastically increase munitions productions back at the home front. Both of these were long-term and large goals, and they would take months to plan, organize, and execute. 
there were a few quick actions that they could take to stop the bleeding, and that involved trying to minimize the gaping wound that was the Somme and Verdun battles. Because of the cost of continued actions on these fronts, there were new orders to conserve manpower, even if it meant giving up ground, which was something that was unthinkable previously. These were the easy wins. For the long-term goals, they began, to, began the process of converting the entire German army to a new defensive scheme, which would replace the heavily fortified front lines with a more elastic setup that would be the hallmark of 1917 and 1918 German defenses. This was not an easy process, and it would take time both to develop what they should do, and also to make sure that all the German commanders were on the same page. While it took a lot of time and resources, it was completely necessary. The German army had been beat up badly in 1916, and because of that it was clear that it would be unlikely to endure another such year in 1917. Every German commander assumed this would happen, that the Entente would just keep throwing offensives at them, so they had to find a way to fix it. Therefore, this new defensive scheme hoped to keep the majority of the men out of the giant artillery preparations that were now a hallmark of British and French attacks, and instead used an increased emphasis on small unit actions, with both a reorganization of the basic infantry units and a downwards push of authority to junior officers to try and make the German defenses more responsive in times of stress. This allowed the Germans to bring most of their men out of the front lines of trenches, because they would then be able to use these small units to execute timely and effective counterattacks, with the goal of recapturing what they were giving up already to stay out of the artillery. All of these changes were complete before the Entente Offensives of 1917, and while it would take a few iterations to get all the kinks worked out, it would present the Entente with a very different beast to try and deal with than in 1916. Another key piece of the plan was an action that in previous years would have been absolutely unthinkable. The Germans were going to voluntarily give up ground in France, and not just a few square yards here and there to get on a better hill, a lot of it. They were going to retreat from the Somme battlefield and into the Hindenburg Line, which they called the Siegfried Line, which they would spend the entire winter of 1916 and 1917 preparing. This would allow them to shorten their lines by 50 kilometers, since they would be retreating out of a giant salient out into the Entente lines, and they would also, it would also give them a 10-division reserve. This was a huge decision, and one that would pay off in 1917, especially since it allowed them to sidestep the spring Entente offensives, which we will discuss in detail in later episodes. While these drastic changes were being made at the front, there was also influences back in Berlin to try and start making political changes as well. The war was going very badly, and the duo were seen as the saviors of the German cause, and because of this, they had immense political capital, and they used this to start making changes. While these would begin relatively simply with industrial or propaganda campaigns, with the goal of massively increasing artillery, machine gun, and munitions output, it would eventually morph into something very different. This program would come to be called the Hindenburg Program, and its goal was to double or triple the output of almost every essential war material by the spring of 1917, with the goal of hitting those increases by the time of the next Entente attack. The details of this program are better left for another episode. However, it was a critical piece of the German war plan for 1917, and because of that, we will be discussing it in some detail in a few episodes. 
For now, it is enough to know that it was the political power of Hindenburg and Ludendorff in Berlin that was able to make it all happen, for better or for worse. Our final step is over to the Austrian side, to once again reopen our discussions about the specifics of the ever-changing relationship between Germany and Austria. Much like the Entente, Germany and Austria came into the war without any real plan on how they were going to coordinate their efforts. The idea of a unified command structure between allies was not something that had been done extensively in previous European wars, beyond temporarily giving a general command of a field army or an army corps during the Napoleonic Wars. All that Germany and Austria had in 1914 were some general understandings between Moltke and Conrad, which had been developed between 1909 and 1914, but there was nothing concrete. In some ways, it was similar to the agreements that the British and French had about what the BEF would do in a continental war, that is to say, some very brief outlines. This created a problem for the two central powers, as the strain of the war grew and grew. There were huge pieces of information that were not being shared between the Allies. Pieces of information like the German plans for Verdun, for instance. Knowing that your ally is about to commit most of its reserves in an effort in France might have been important for Conrad and the Austrians to know, since it would greatly limit the availability of German support in case of emergency. This would cause problems for both parties, when the Brusilov offensive began, for instance. I think we spoke in pretty good detail during those Brusilov episodes about how the Austrians slowly lost their powers of independent action over the course of 1916, with the root of that process being in 1915. It was during that year that General von Mackensen was given command of the armies that were moved against Serbia, and which would eventually remove Serbia from the war. It was at that point that there was friction between the Germans and Austrians as to what Mackensen should do next with his army. Conrad wanted to continue the attack through Montenegro and on to Salonika. Falkenhayn absolutely did not. In that specific situation, the attack was not continued. But it, it is a good example of why not having a unified command could cause so much friction. Every time a decision had to be made that involved both German and Austrian troops, Conrad and Falkenhayn would butt heads about what should happen, and every time somebody would walk away dissatisfied. This constantly degraded their relationship, and this was eventually solved in September 1916 with the creation of the Supreme War Council after the Ottomans and Bulgarians suggested it, I'm guessing with a nudge from the Germans. This should have solved the issue of coordinating all of the nations, but unfortunately it did not, because the Austrians were still given the ability to control the Italian front, which would sort of defeat the purpose in the long run, as they had a habit of doing whatever they wanted to on that Italian front instead of coordinating with the others. Overall, because the Germans and Austrians did not come into the war with a good way of coordinating their military commands, it greatly hindered their ability to work together at a time when it was absolutely essential. It probably contributed to their defeat, and it was only in late 1916 that they began to rectify the situation. However, I am being a bit down on them right now, but the Entente would have the same problems, and it would take them even longer to set up some form of overall command, and it would take them being pushed to the moment of greatest crisis and the German attacks in the spring of 1918 to finally make it happen. So with that, I think we will end our episode. I hope you will join me next episode as we begin a series of episodes focusing on the home fronts and how the war was putting extreme strain on all of the societies of Europe, 
and for some countries, it would change them forever.